0: that we're looking at today in Hebrews talks about the the beautiful way that God has made for us. It's, uh, you can turn to Hebrews 10 if you wish. You also have the um, you also have the the text printed if you have the sermon outline, the handout. So, yeah, we're as we continue in the uh, series in Hebrews, we are at chapter 10 verse 19. And I've told you already that this is the place where the epistle changes from being primarily declaring to us the wonderful things that Christ has done and the excellence of Christ to now telling us how we ought to respond to that. And most of the epistles have that kind of structure to them. Now, of course, we've heard a lot of things that have told us how we ought to respond along the way. But the the overall emphasis and focus has been on Christ. And what he's done right from the very first verse in Hebrews. It talks about him and how excellent he is. And now there's going to be this section about how we should respond to him. So we're looking at 10 19 through 25. One commentator pointed out that this could have been the end. In other words, like the Hebrews could have ended with, the, uh, with, with verse 25 here in chapter 10. It would have been a, a fitting conclusion to say, okay, you've heard all this about Christ. Here's what you need to do. Lay it out and then be done. But uh, maybe they have a benediction, a couple of greetings or something. But uh, no, in this case, the author to Hebrews, he wants to really spend some time on how we ought to respond. So he goes into lots of things. He goes into examples. Of faithful people in the past, how we can learn from them, sort of what we were just singing about in the ages, it's been the same kind of thing, and we can learn from them, because they were pilgrims too, like we are, that were trusting in God for His promise of salvation. And so this goes on for several chapters, an encouragement, exhortation to our duty. So this is sort of the introduction to this whole section that we're coming into now, that we're looking at today. So listen now as I read this introduction and to the section of exhortation in Hebrews. This is none other than the holy word of God. So give it proper reverence and attention. Hebrews ten nineteen. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Thanks be to God for his holy and precious word. The author's objection, objective here is very clear. He wants to tell us how to respond to the wonderful access that Jesus Christ has given us to the Father. By his saving work as our priest. He gives us a summary of how we ought to respond. After declaring that, that he gives us a summary of how we ought to respond with three injunctions that begin with the words, let us. So there's three verses there. Let us do this. Let us do that in response to what Christ has done. See them in verse 22, 23, and 24. Let us draw near to God. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. verse 23 and 24, let us consider one another. And then at the end of this passage we're looking at today, verse 25, he exhorts us to not neglect the Christian assembly, the church, where these three injunctions are often really initiated and carried out. Not entirely. There's many things that we do outside of the assembly, but these things kind of have a key element to them that happens in the assembly of God's people and around the assembly when we when we come together as his people on the Lord's day. So let's look at let's look at all of this more closely. That's an overview of the passage. First, Christians see here the blessed condition that you have in Christ, what we've been looking at in Hebrews, a privileged condition that calls for an appropriate response. So he kind of takes all that he's been saying this in these couple of verses here at the beginning, to say, "Look, this is what's been done for you. Remember what's been done for you, and now I'm going to encourage you to res- how to respond to it." So again, verse nineteen to twenty-one. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil—that is his flesh—and having a high priest over the house of God, let us right. Because of this, do this. Because of what has been done for you, what you have, do this. The three injunctions follow. Here is something so wonderful that it obliges you to respond. You can't properly receive knowledge about what Christ has done and not respond to it. It's completely inappropriate to not respond in the way that he's talking about. It compels you. It could almost be said that if you don't respond, then you probably don't understand. You you have not received the truth and are still in need of salvation. You've not embraced Christ. You're not yet truly a Christian who understands what it is to rest in Christ. What is the wonderful blessing? Well, it is that you have access to God. You have boldness, verse 19, to enter the holiest now the holiest refers to the place where God is openly manifested, and we shouldn't think here of a a physical thing. Okay, where you know we're, we're saying okay, so God is somewhere f- physically, and we go to a a location where God is going to 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 be pre- the holiest place. No, it, it, this is this was the place where the, God's God's presence. Where he manifests himself, where he reveals his glory, it's a place where no one before the coming of Christ had dared to go. The imagery I've picked up from the rituals is picked up from the rituals of the Old Testament, the tabernacle in the Old Testament, where you had the holy sanctuary, the holy of holies, where God's throne was represented, where he revealed his presence in a sense. No one but the high priest could go there and that only once per year and not without washings and sacrifices for sin. God was showing that the way was still not yet opened. And we have seen in Hebrews that it was a ritual representation of that uh, of, of coming before the true and living God that was given there. No one dared to go even there unless he had been authorized, even to the ritual representation of God. You didn't go there unless you were authorized by God. And that was only the priest once a year. And only after he'd had all kinds of washings and sacrifices and went in with a a sacrifice even to offer as he went before God. But now, you see, it's quite different. You can come with boldness to the holy place. You can all come to God with boldness right before the face of God. The loss of access to God was our greatest loss in the fall. And redemption is recovering that. We were created to be His worshipers. Eternity is set in your heart. And you cannot be satisfied apart from God. We can never be satisfied until we're able to behold His glory. And to live in harmonious communion with Him. We were cut off because of our sin. Justly so. God is holy and He will not have defiled beings before His face. He is extremely holy and consumes in flames of wrath that which is not holy, if that which is not holy should dare to come before Him. He is too beautiful to be mingled with sin. It is His glory to be repulsed by what is repulsive. And you are repulsive, and so am I because of our sin. How is it that there has been such a change That we who are sinners can draw near to God, can come before the face of God. Jesus Christ has opened the way for sinners to come before the face of God. That has been the major theme that we have seen in Hebrews. The writer gets straight to the point. He says that we have boldness to enter by the blood of Jesus. He's kind of taking all the things he's been talking about. He says, you have boldness to enter by the blood of Jesus. Jesus came from heaven to be our priest. He came with an offering, the only offering that could take away our sins. He came to offer Himself. It was His blood that was shed to pay the full penalty of our sin. The Son of God shed His blood to give us access to God. So we come with boldness because of the magnitude of what has been done. The blood of Jesus The Son of God has been shed to give us access. What more could have been done? If His blood has been shed for that purpose, then you can be absolutely certain that enough has been done to fully pay for your sin. What more could have been done? What greater measures could have been taken? What has been done, if you understand it, is astonishing. And it is certainly sufficient to take away your sin. You can see how this new way is described in verse 20 and 21. It is called a new way. It's radically new. It's, it's, as already mentioned, no one dared to come before the face of God before this way was opened by Jesus Christ, by the shedding of His blood. That's the reason this way is said to have been consecrated for us through the veil. That is, His flesh, it says. See, Jesus came here in flesh. And in flesh, he went before God with an atonement for our sin. He, as one of us, went before God where no one could ever go after the fall of man. Now, you talk about the priest going. He was just going into a representation of the the real presence before God. Yes, it was. There was a sense in which God was was with his people. He dwelt with his people. He was present with them. But. There is a there, there was a, a, a distance, there was a barrier. Though Jesus was the Son of God with full divinity, he added another nature to his own when he came here to represent us. A human nature with a human body and spirit. In human flesh, then you see, he's the one who broke the barrier. He went behind the veil, he went through the veil, however you want to say it, that separated us from God. What is the veil? What is the actual veil? It's the heavens. He passed through the heavens. God is in heaven. We're upon earth. And we were cut off from him by our sin. Jesus has gone to the Father. It's represented in the tabernacle with the, the veil that separates the worshipers from the place where God is. It, it's, and this is not, you see, what where Jesus went was not to a tabernacle made with hands, but the one that is eternal. Jesus, in our human flesh, went before the very face of God. He is there in the place where God is fully manifested at the Father's right hand in glory. He made a new way, opening the way to God from whom we had been shut out. By association with Jesus, we're told, in, for example, in Colossians, that we're seated with Christ and the heavenly places because he is there and we're associated with him we are represented there it's like if you had a someone that was your friend that that went to ottawa and he represented you there well jesus christ is representing us he is one of us so this way is new and it is called a new way because it is new but it is also called a living way why is it called a living way was called a living way because Jesus is a living, reigning priest and Savior who is active as a priest. He didn't just make a way and then leave it. No, that not, not that he must offer more sacrifices. He's, one sacrifice was all that was required, the sacrifice of his own. He can't die many, many times. He he was the Son of God. He did this for us. He finished doing that and sat down at the right hand of the Father, having fulfilled all that was required to purify us. But He lives as our priest to, as it were, take us by the hand and lead us into the holy place before the face of God. We come out of the wilderness of the world leaning upon our beloved. He is our high priest. Who is over the house of God, as it says? He's active, m- administering over the house of God, working to uh, call people and to, to work in their lives. He looks after us and he keeps us on the pathway to God. We have communion with him. He helps us in our weakness and in our infirmity. He ever lives to make intercession for us. His way is a beautiful way to a beautiful living way, is a gracious priest. Who guides and protects us. And upon him we constantly lean. And all the while. The blood that he sheds for our sins. Covers for our sins. So that we have full forgiveness of sin. As we come before the father in him. This has truly transformed our lives. What Jesus did. Changed everything. For the people of God. It is a new a way that had not been done before, and a living way. Having access to God through Jesus then calls for a radical response from all of you. How do you respond to what we have access to God through Jesus Christ? Let's look at that now. The first response is quite obvious. What should you do if you have access to God? You should come to God. That's what it says. The way's open, there's access. What do you do? You come to God. Look, verse 22 let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Of course, now that you can come, come. Why do you stand off from God? Oh, well, I'm a sinner. Yes, I am too. Why do you stand off from God? Jesus made a way for sinners. He didn't make a way for people that are are righteous. He made a way for sinners. So why do you stand off? Why don't you come to God? Draw near to God. We are told here simply, draw near. And it's talking about, of course, drawing near to God. But but what, what does this mean? I mean, Paul, the apostle, he had the privilege to go up into the third heaven. Does it mean that we can go up into the third heaven? Have you been up to the third heaven? Paul's, no, Paul described that as something that was unique to him. It was very unusual. It was very extraordinary. Something that he was privileged to do that, that other people are, are not able to do. He had to be given a thorn in the flesh so he wouldn't get proud about having done something that no one else could do now. But uh, you, you see, we will, be brought, we will be brought to the third heaven. We will be brought to glory. We will be where Jesus is, and we're looking forward to that. We're connected and associated with him who is there now. So what does it mean now to draw near if it doesn't mean that I can go up to the third heaven now? What does it mean? There are different ways of explaining it. But I think the primary thing is that Jesus has revealed the Father to us in a way that the Father was not revealed before. So relative to how it was before, you can come to God and the people before couldn't come to God. But yet, the people in the Old Testament could go to God if you compare them to the people that were outside of Israel. They would come before God and they would worship Him and praise Him and engage in His ordinances and know His love and grace that was revealed to them. So it's a comparative kind of a thing. By coming to earth and going to the cross, Jesus showed us to the Father to such an extent that He once said that the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven, okay, after his coming is what he was referring to in the New Testament, is greater than the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets. And he said that was John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist came right up to the brink of seeing what Jesus Christ was going to do. He didn't see that. He, didn't, he, he, he was gone before Jesus went to the cross and rose again. But he was right there up to the brink. He saw the Son of God who had come. So it's because Jesus has revealed God to us by his coming and his work more than God had ever been revealed before that you people of God can know God and can come to God as he is now revealed in Christ in a way that no one could ever come to him before. You can come nearer to God and have communion and fellowship with him in a way that no one could do in the old covenant. In the New Covenant, it says we all know the Lord from the least of us to the greatest of us. And by comparison, you see, those who live before Christ could be said not to know him at all because they had not met Jesus through whom God is revealed. Yet they had met Jesus through their Old Testament You see what I'm getting at? That It's, it's a comparative thing. Okay, what is revealed now that was not revealed before? It was revealed before that God was holy. Definitely. You remember them at Mount Sinai and all the Isaiah before the, the majesty of the vision that he saw? But now it has been revealed that he is so holy that only the blood of his son can atone for our sin. That is radically different than seeing thunder and lightning on Mount Sinai and being told that come don't come in this mountain or you'll die, or having the ground swallow you up and, and absorb you. Now we realize. This thing is so major, God's holiness and the divide between us and him, that the Son of God had to shed his blood. That was not revealed fully to the people of God until Jesus actually... They didn't get it until Jesus went to the cross and actually was received and was, and was raised again. You come nearer to God than anyone ever could before if you know Jesus as crucified for sins. What else? It was revealed that God was loving and gracious before Jesus came. He gathered his people. He declared his mercy to them. He he worked with them. But by his coming, by Jesus' coming, it is now revealed that his love is so gracious and his mercy is so great that he gave his only begotten son for us who don't deserve it in any way. You know the love of God, it has been revealed to you now more than anyone in the Old Testament could have ever grasped it, more than they could have ever understood. You're able to come to God before the face of God as He is revealed in Jesus Christ. That is how He is revealed through the cross of Jesus Christ. We could say similar things about God's wisdom, about God's power, about God's justice, about His beauty, about His goodness, and on and on. We saw so much in Jesus Christ as He was revealed to us. He revealed the Father. We could say similar things of all of that. But all in all, we come near to God as He has been revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say to His disciples? What did He say when Philip said, show us the Father? What did He say? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I came, I reveal the Father to you by my ministry, by my work, by my person. I reveal Him. It's not, he, he, he wasn't saying He was the same person as the Father. The Son is a distinct person. But He was saying, I make known the Father to you by my ministry and my work here as the Son of God. There is indeed more to come when we enter glory. And I'm glad for that. Because I know I taught before that our hearts can't be satisfied until we see all the glory of God. Heart's not satisfied yet. <laughs> there's a whole lot more for us to see. There's a lot more glory and a lot more beauty. But wow, it's way better than it was before I knew Christ. Now there's so much more. I've got God, God has made Himself known. There is no comparison in what drawing near means now to what it will mean then when we go to the third heaven. But likewise, there is no comparison in what it meant to draw near in the Old Testament. And what it means now that Christ has been revealed. This is, so, so what do you do then? You draw near. That's what you do. If there's a way to draw near, you come in that way. Notice how the drawing near that we're called to do is described. Verse 22 again. Let us draw near. How? How is it described? With a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You could not come before the holy God if you didn't have cleansing of your conscience. If you didn't have washing from defilement. And Jesus has provided for that. As you can see, the focus is on coming with assurance. You don't come to a place where you could not go on your own lest you would be melted down. You, you do not come in that way, but you come now with confidence, boldness, because... The way has been provided with assurance in what God has promised and sworn concerning Christ, the forgiveness of sins, assurance that the cleansing that came through him is surely sufficient for sinners so that we can come to God who is so much more holy than we ever knew until Jesus came and revealed him to us. Sprinkling and washing were the methods of cleansing from Old Testament defilement. So those terms are used here. Now, we can have the sprinkling of the blood of Christ that cleanses our hearts from an evil conscience. How do we get sprinkled by the blood of Christ? Of course, it's figurative, isn't it? It's, it's when we trust in Him. we're washed, our sins are cleansed by the blood that He shed on the cross. Not literally that we have blood poured on us, but that Jesus has done this, symbolized by the literal pouring of blood of Old Testament sacrifices. And we also have the washing of our bodies with pure water. We do have a New Testament symbol for that, don't we, with, with baptism. And, of course, it says it's not the cleansing of our body that saves us, the washing of our our flesh. That's that's not what we're talking about. Baptism with water represents baptism with the Holy Spirit. John said, I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit puts God's law in our heart so that we have a conscience that now where we're serving God in sincerity. We know we come short, got the blood of Christ. But we also are oriented toward God now because we've been born again by the Spirit. We've been changed. We come to God. We're buried with Christ in baptism. We're raised to walk in new life with Him. And so we come in the, having our, our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We draw near. You don't have to stand off because there is cleansing through Jesus Christ and what He has provided. Radical cleansing because you're doing something radical and going to God as one who is a sinner. And would otherwise be completely rejected. So dear bride of Christ, let us draw near to God in full assurance of faith. The second injunction is in response to our, in response to our privilege in Christ, is given in verse 23. What else should we do? We should, we should come near, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Our confession is really that all of our hope is in Christ. You know, he's the one that has provided for us and made our way as he is revealed in the gospel. We confess that Jesus is Lord of all, who has been given all authority in heaven and earth, and who will reign until all of his enemies are made his footstool. We confess that all judgment has been given to him, and that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. We confess that he is the Son of God who came from heaven, who became flesh, who dwelt among us. We beheld His glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And that in our flesh, He atoned for our sins on the cross and was raised for our justification. We preach that He is the only way of salvation. And we preach Him to the nations that whoever believes in Him will be saved. These things are true, gloriously true. But the world puts pressure on your profession, on your confession of saying that the things of God, these things are all true. You're under pressure as long as you're in this world to deny some of those things, to trim off some of those things and not express them clearly. There are are always certain things that the world does not like and it's too easy for us to downplay those things. You have not been at all bold if you talk about the things that the world agrees with today. It's when you talk about the things that the world doesn't agree with that you're bold in Christ. And our tendency is to downplay those things. Perhaps one of the biggest of these, always, is that we're condemned to hell apart from Jesus Christ. The world will mock and they will say, how can you be so arrogant? And say that only people who have your religion are saved. And we can get embarrassed. And we can sort of leave out certain aspects of our confession. We can say, well, this is really a great way. It works for me. Why don't you come and learn about it too? We, we See, we're evangelizing. But what are we doing? We're not saying it's the only way. Because we're, we're, we're trying to... We don't, we don't want to have the edge on there. Of course, the true arrogance, if you want to talk about arrogance... Is for anyone to ignore our Creator and all the indication that He has given us of His displeasure with sin. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against righteousness and ungodliness of men who hold the truth, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They God has revealed His Son on the cross. It is arrogant to look at such things and instead of humbling ourselves and crying out for mercy, to accuse God of being unjust. So when people are accusing God of being unjust because His way is the only way, then you don't, you, you, should not see, you should not accept the charge that you're being arrogant. It is arrogant to have such a thing as a Savior crucified and raised again, and that all in fulfillment of prophecies that were given of old, and to deny there's anything to it, and to refuse to look at it. If God has been pleased to speak to sinners, everyone should listen. The unbeliever Is the arrogant one in that sense. Don't let them draw you in to their understanding that it's arrogant to believe what God has revealed to be true when He has made it so plain. And we as believers are admonished to avoid, what we're admonished to avoid here is wavering. What is that? Well, literally, it's turning this way and that, being blown about by the winds of doctrine in the world. We're not to be tossed about by every wind of doctrine, by various objections that the world raises to what God has clearly revealed. Jesus is worthy. He's not someone you should be ashamed of. He's someone that you should delight in, even if it means you suffer for his name. There is so much revealed about God now. We know him so much better now, you see, since Jesus came. So with that privilege goes responsibility. We know him better So we need to confess him better. We know him more fully. So we need to confess him more fully as he is now revealed. It's inappropriate for us to waver in what has been graciously revealed to us. No, brothers and sisters, hold fast to your confession. Don't join the unbelievers. Arrogance. You you do that when you accept their charge that it is arrogant to say Jesus is the only way. God is faithful. Everything he has revealed is true. And it doesn't need to be adjusted. He will not fail to do all that he has promised. No promise of his will fail. Confess that truth with boldness. Now, I don't mean that you should be obnoxious in the way that you present the truth. But I mean that you should be unwavering in the truth. You present it to people. You, you give them a little to think about and work with them along the way with wisdom and, and judiciousness. But to deny things or to cover them up because you're ashamed to waver or even to start to embrace things that are erroneous because they're not popular. That's what we're to guard against here. Now we're ready to look at the third injunction. The third injunction that flows from the new and living way that Christ has opened is in verse 24. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Only fitting, isn't it? I mean, when you have... When the Lord has done so much for us, shouldn't we be zealous about seeing ourselves and others serve Him? Shouldn't that be what we desire? We want, we sang earlier, we want to see your churches full. We want to see people praising you for what you've done. We want our brothers and sisters who are maybe lagging along, we want them to to call on the name of the Lord. Each, Each one of you, first look to yourself. Each one of you needs to be zealous, for Christ has called us to love and good works. He has saved us in order that we might do love and good works. The old version says that we're to provoke one another to love and good works. Now, that's actually what the word means. It's, it's often used negatively. Like when Paul and Barnabas had the contention with each other, it's the word contention that's used, it translated contention in the New King James. It's the same word. It's translated here, stir up. (laughs) They were stirred up at each other. And it's it's often something that it's kind of got an edge on it. The idea is that we're to prod each other to love and good works. The best way you do that, by the way, first of all, is by your example. But it also goes beyond mere example. Parents, you certainly know this with your children. You have to prod them to do good works. You have to encourage them, you have to push them along, you have to suggest, you have to show opportunity, you have to guide them along. Notice that it says to consider one another. Now we ran into that word before in Hebrews, the word that's translated consider in Hebrews 3.1, where we're told to consider the apostle and high priest of our confession. And I don't know if you remember way back then, but I told you that it's a strong word. It doesn't mean that you just go, oh yeah, and then you go on. It's something that you devote your mind to. So we're supposed to concentrate, think about how that we can stir up ourselves and others to love and good works. You're to mull it over. You're to engage your mind in it. You will not do love and good works, nor will you help anyone else to do it, if you don't engage your mind. It doesn't just happen. Okay, it's something that you have to consider, you have to devote yourself to. There are two ways that you need to expend effort thinking about others in connection with stirring up love and good works. The first way is that you evaluate their situation and their needs, the people around you, and how you can do good works. If you begin to look at someone and their situation and their plight, your tendency is to say, oh, well, it's not that bad. You know, it's not like what I had to do. No, no, you, you look at them and you consider and it stirs you up as a Christian to love and good works, to go and minister to other people. You're not indifferent to the people around you. That's the first thing. The second way is that you look around and you see other people and you notice that there seems to be something wrong and they're not doing love and good. And so you go to them and you encourage them. You find out, are they struggling with sin? Are they, uh, do they need comfort? Do they need some kind of encouragement? Are they confused about the gospel? Are they going through a hard time? Do they need relief somehow? And you, you can, you're thinking, how can I help other people to function doing love and good works? You look at your children. You say, are they doing love and good work? What's wrong? You have to to be engaged. You have to act on these things, you see. And if we have this glorious way to come to God and to have communion with Him, then of course we want everyone to be involved and engaged in doing good works for the Lord. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. So there you have three injunctions that flow out of having access to God by a new and living way through Christ and his bloodshed. Now we come to the last verse in our text, verse 25. It calls us as those who have been brought to God to go to church. <laughs> That's what it calls us to do. The words are, 1025, "...not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching." From the outset in the New Testament, uh, we find Christians assembling together for worship and, and encouragement just as a matter of course. It wasn't you know it was something that they just all did. Uh, to they, they um they were they were steadfast in the apostles' doctrine and the prayers, breaking the bread, the Lord's Supper, and fellowship, all of those things from the outset. To these Hebrew Christians. The word that is used here for the assembly is epe synagoge, synagogue. You hear the word synagogue. God appointed a weekly gathering for them back in Leviticus 23.3 for the Hebrew people when he called them to be his people. He said, Leviticus 23.3, six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. What is a convocation? Vocation is a calling. Con is with. Calling together, calling with. A convocation. You have a convocation in your place where you dwell. This wasn't talking about going up to the tabernacle that they did three times a year. This was weekly. Okay, every six six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord. Where? In all your dwellings. Now, the Jews almost entirely neglected those weekly convocations until the exile when they went to Babylon. Years later, they were very negligent about doing the weekly gatherings. They had their feast days, they had the temple, they had all those things. But that's when the synagogue began to appear and they began to have those those weekly gatherings and they were very much in place when Jesus came. We're told that it was Jesus' custom to go up to the synagogue. Of course it was. It was one of the commandments of God, that you go and you do this every week. But when we read the New Testament, we see that from the very beginning, this was what Christians did, because the word "ecclesia" is what they're called. Paul writes to who? The Ecclesia at Colossae or the Ecclesia at Corinth. Why does he call them Ecclesia? Ecclesia means assembly, it means church. This is how Christians were known in the New Testament the people who gathered together in a place to worship God, and they would be read. He would say, Read this epistle to them when the church gathers. And he would say things like, When you come together to break bread, da 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 da. And he would talk to them. It's just understood. And this was done on the first day of the week. We get that incidentally mentioned through Scripture. We know that Jesus did everything on the first day of the week. He rose from the dead on the first day of the week. He came back again to talk to His disciples on the first day of the week. He poured out the Spirit on the first day of the week. And in Acts 20, verse 7, this practice of gathering on the first day of the week is mentioned as the customary practice of the church. Just what they did. They gathered together on that day to break bread. Paul waited to, when they did that to meet with them. And in 1 Corinthians sixteen two, it says, On the first day of the week, collect your tithes and bring your offerings. In Revelation 1, 10, John speaks about being in the Spirit on the Lord's day. He was not able to gather with the people, but he recognized there was a distinct day in the week called the Lord's day. And that was the first day when the Christians would gather together. Everywhere in the New Testament it is understood that this is what Christians do. So it is here in our text as well, isn't it? It's just understood. This is what you're expected to do. The command is, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. Apparently, some of the Hebrews were had grown negligent about gathering. This is unacceptable to the author of Hebrews. God has appointed one day in seven to keep holy, and he has called us to a holy convocation on that on that day especially, even from ancient times. And so when, like, in the early epistles and in Hebrews, that's written to Hebrews, it actually uses the word synagogue, as we see that it does here. And uh, James uses that word when he says, when someone comes into your assembly, like a poor man comes into your assembly, he called it, the word assembly is synagogue that he uses there. But most of the time, it's called ecclesia. You see, but it's the same thing as what I'm showing you with that. So, uh, yes, God has appointed one day in seven from ancient times. Yes, It's very often the case that those who would not think of skipping work for no good reason will opt out of the Christian gathering for no good reason. The excuses can be quite ridiculous and the sort that we would be ashamed to make before God. If you were called before God to say, oh, why did you skip church? Oh, well, a friend called me. Um, you, why didn't you bring your friend to church? Well, they might not want to come. So why did you not come? You're tired because you stayed up late. You stayed up late. Well, do you do that before you go to work? Do you just call a boss and say, I, I'm not going to come because I stayed up late last night. I was watching movies, and I, I just don't really feel like going to work today. Would, what, what would your boss think about that? Some of you, I know, Are not well. There's some people listening on live stream today that are not well. And we're very thankful that we can provide live stream for those that are not able to come. We know that those who love the Lord and His assemblies are sad when they're not able to join with the people of God. And we're glad that we can reach out in that way with our technology. And uh, we also, brothers and sisters here who are well and healthy, We need to reach out to those who are not healthy and we need to see that they're encouraged and that we reach out to them, especially who are not able to join with us when we see each other, when we eat together and when we do these things. It's a sad thing. And uh, it's, it's a very sad thing when that's the case. But you see, we have absences as well that are just not warranted. And it's not appropriate, according to this text, when you have a savior who's made a way to come to God, and when a part of that way where we come before God is very much involved with the Christian assembly, then it's not appropriate to say, oh, I'm not going to bother. Now, why do I say in particular that we have absences that are not appropriate when we have a Savior who has brought these things near to us? Well, I say that because of the context of this verse. What have we seen in the passage today? We have seen how we ought to respond when the way has been made open by Christ to come into the presence of God. And I want to say to you that all three of the let us commands are often things that are done in connection with a holy convocation on the Lord's Day. All three of those let us statements involve the assembly. Not exclusively, they're done in other contexts too. But they are especially done In connection with the assembly. This is certainly the case with the third let us statement. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Why did I start with the third? Because it's tied together directly in the passage. Verse 25 flows right out of verse 24. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. So you do the exhorting in assembling together is what it's getting at. The author is showing that the considering of one another is often something that we do when we see each other at church. You might not even think about people much during the week. Now, now you could and you should. But you're involved in many things. We sing together. We pray together. We hear the word of God together. We come to the table together. We may see someone with their head hanging down. We may see someone dragging along. It's time to encourage and be encouraged. If we never see each other, then we don't know about those things. I find that too often Christians enjoy being a new person in a church. Because rightly, lots of people reach out to you when you're a new person in the church. They talk about how friendly the church is, and that's good. But then after they've been there for a while, they say, I don't find the church so friendly. Well, why did it change? You thought that when you came. Why did it change? Perhaps the problem is that these people never went from being someone who was being welcomed and received and everybody was reaching out to get to know them to being someone that was joined shoulder to shoulder to reach out to other people. They still want to be the recipient of all of the, the outreach and all of that stuff they they don't want to give ministry, they want to receive ministry. People like that will change churches all the time. And they'll go, Oh, it's so much better, so much better over here, or over there. Sometimes actually I am concerned when someone comes not you know, someone comes visiting the church, and they say, Oh, this is just wonderful, oh I love it, oh I want to be and I think they probably won't be here very long. And It's usually true, maybe four years, five years, however long, they're gone. Why? because they weren 't people that wanted to get engaged in ministering to others and dealing with hard things and working through situations. there were people that just wanted an easy situation that they could coast along and have everybody love them and care for them and reach out to them now of course um, you know people people can people can overcome these things uh, it 's very important for us to to, to engage in this way. And I, I, the, the call to consider one another is, of course, not the only reason for coming to church. And I don't want to make it sound like it is. The other two let us injunctions here are also associated very much with coming to church. So let's back up now. We looked at the third one first. Let's back up now and look at the first one and how it's related to church. Let us draw near to God. Remember we said if the way is open, we should draw near to God? Let us draw near to God with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Well, it's true that we can commune with God wherever we are. But it's also true that when we gather in the assembly, we're drawing near to God under the promises of the gospel. We're refreshing ourselves in the gospel. It is in the assembly that he has appointed the preaching of the word, public prayer, and the sacraments. You don't do these in other places. It is here that we make our vows before God. We mentioned that we cannot yet go into the third heaven like Paul did. So where do we go? The Old Testament people went to the tabernacle where they stood at a distance, but yet they went to God there. We sang about that in Psalm 84. We do the same thing. We come into the assembly where God's people, where he meets with his people. Brothers and sisters, when you assemble for worship, you are before God in a way that's unique from when you're in your living room at home. He takes special interest in us. And we are to take special interest in him in the assembly. He makes himself known. He manifests himself to us through the ordinances that he has appointed. It is here that we praise him together. It is here that we, we offer, or that he often convicts us of our sin. It is here that he often encourages us so that we are, go forth in, in assurance and confidence of his grace and mercy, of the provision that he has for us in his love. We would be excited to come before some, someone famous that we admired. How much more should we be excited to come before our Lord in the place where He is revealed to us in the assemblies that He has appointed? Ask Him to speak to you here. Ask Him to speak to your brothers in the assembly. Ask Him to manifest Himself to us through the ordinances that He has appointed. There are times when you may not; it may be dry, but you cry out to God and He will bless you. Ask him to speak to you here and to speak to your brothers. Ask him to help you worship him and to respond to him. The second let us statement is also one that is not exclusively associated. I mean, not exclusively associated with our assembly, but it's very much associated with it. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Well, yeah, you do that when you're in the workplace, in your neighborhood, wherever you are. You hold on to confession without wavering. But, but the simple act of publicly gathering for worship in a place where the truth of the gospel is confessed, by doing that, you testify to the world that you believe. Churches gathering all over the world are a testimony all over the world that there are people who fear God. And if there were no churches in a place... The assumption would be that there are no Christians in the place. We gather in a public testimony proclaiming that we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, we also actually do confess our faith here. We say creeds, we we confess uh, the things that we believe. Today, Evangeline is also professing her faith. And as she does that, we will all renew the vows that we made, that we made before the Lord in the assembly. We also confess creeds and we sing our songs of praise to God, testifying of his greatness and of all that he has done. And we grow in our profession. You don't know all that you need to know about Christ. You, are not, you need to be enriched in your profession. And so when you come here, it is to make that profession stronger, to make you more confident, to make it more complete and more full. It has gaps in it. And we all need to grow. So again, the church has very much to do With confessing our faith. With uh, holding fast our confession without wavering. Enough about that. Consider what we have seen today. That since Jesus has come. We have been brought before God's face. In a way that was unheard of. Before Jesus came. How wonderful our God is to provide so fully for sinners like us. That we can come to him as our God. There is nothing more important. Nothing else can satisfy our hungry souls at last than to behold the glory of God. And in this present time, we behold God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ, in what He has revealed to us. And Jesus reveals Himself to His people, especially in the assembly. So let us draw near to God with full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast our confession of faith Without wavering, let us consider one another to stir up love and good works. And do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as the manner of some is. It is added, we didn't look at this yet, and so much the so more as you see the day approaching. What is that talking about? The destruction of Jerusalem? Could well be. That's what they were facing, in the next thing that was going to happen. But you know what I said before about how these things, they, they have reverberations into the future, coming before God. What does that mean? It went one thing before Christ came. It means something else after he came. It means something else when we go to glory. So what is this? The day. Ultimately, it's the day of judgment, the final day, isn't it? The, the one really bleeds into the other. It's not even clear whether the people in the, in the early church could clearly distinguish that, that these events weren't going to happen at the same time that uh, the destruction of Jerusalem and the return of Jesus Christ. There's clues not, but did they understand that? It's not, very, it's not clear that they did at that time, and it doesn't really matter. They, were, they knew that the Lord was going to come back. They knew that there was going to be a day of judgment. They knew that there was a final resurrection. And in light of the day, they were to be always prepared. You see, so much the more as you see the day approaching. We want to be ready. We want to be ready as individuals. We want to be ready as a church. May He find us busy when He comes. May He find us responding to His beautiful way, drawing near to Him. May He find us doing that. May He find us confessing our hope without wavering. May He find us stirring ourselves and one another up to love and good works. Because he has made a way for us to come to him through the blood of his son. There's a responsibility to be engaged. Please stand and let's call on his name. Oh, Lord, our God, how thankful we are. For what you have provided for us through Jesus Christ, a way of access into the holy place. We pray, oh, Lord, that as we come before your face, that we would rejoice in the privilege that we have we have so much more than what anyone had in the old covenant. We thank you that in the new covenant, we all know you from the least of us to the greatest. We pray, Lord, that we would rejoice and that we would give thanks for the privileges and the blessings that we have. And Father, if we do rejoice in those privileges and those blessings, then we will be engaged with the things that you have exhorted us to do. We will draw nearer to you. We will come to you in this way. We won't leave off coming to you when the way is open. We will cry out to you. We'll do it privately. We'll have times of prayer. We'll call on you when we're just about our business. We'll do it in the assembly. And Father, we'll also confess the truth. We'll, We'll rejoice in the truth. We'll love the truth. We won't be ashamed of the truth. We pray, Lord, that you would work in us because we confess that too often we are ashamed of the truth. It's so easy to talk about it and then to go out and do the very thing that we know we shouldn't do. Please have mercy on us, Lord. We need your grace. And then there's the stirring up one another to love and good works. And, oh, Father, we pray that we would consider one another, that we would not be a, a little island kind of person that is just thinking about our own needs and our own hurts and, you know, whatever it is that's on our mind. Lord, there's way too much of that in me personally. And, oh, Father, it's, it's kind of disgusting but we pray that you would help us, O oh Lord, that we would be a people that, that really do care about others because our Lord Jesus has given us a model of that. His love is so, is so outreaching. It's so lovely. And Father, we're so far from it. Lord, visit us with your spirit. Pour out your spirit on us and help us, Lord. We, we, we want to be filled with, with all the fullness that comes from those who know Christ. We want to grow up in the faith. We want to be come together in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to maturity. Oh, Father, we're so immature. The church is so immature today. Please, Lord, work in us. Thank you for the hope of glory. Thank you that Christ in us is the hope of glory and that, that we will be brought before your face at last in the fullest way in glory. We thank you for that hope. But Father, help us to count our privileges now and to engage fully in them and not to despise them, for they are great. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of His Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.